Well, please remain standing with me for the reading of God's Word this morning from Esther chapter 8 through chapter 9, 19. Esther 8 through 9, 19. A little bit longer this morning, so feel free to sit if needed. But for those of us who can, let's remain standing for the reading of God's Word. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had given or taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plot of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it pleased the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Now the king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples and the Jews who were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command. And the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white, with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple, and the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. 
The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of all of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed Parshan Datha and Dalphon and Asphatha and Poratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vizatha, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemies of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now, what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they killed 300 men in Susa. But they laid no hands on the plunder. Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives, and got relief from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But... They laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th day they rested and made that day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day and on the 14th day and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore, the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. It's God's word for his people. You may be seated. And now let's pray once again and ask for God's help. And Father, we pray that you would show us the greatness of your mercy and deliverance, that we might have eyes to see both your justice and your mercy, your power and your glory, but also your grace. We pray that we might see Christ in these pages, and that you would give us hearts for him, feet that would run to him, and mouths that would declare his praise for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. So Esther uh, is one of the Bible's most unique books. It's an Old Testament book, but the Mosaic Law is absent. It's an Old Testament book, but there's no prophecies. There's not even any prayer. Not only is there no word from God, God isn't even mentioned. And so many wonder how this can genuinely be a Christian book in the Christian Bible. Uh, now, if you ever find yourself like Ahasuerus at the beginning of chapter 6, unable to fall asleep, I can send you some riveting scholarly debates about all this that will put you to sleep in no time. But 
I pray that these sermons have enabled you to answer the question, even if you haven't read the scholars. Now, one obvious reason God isn't mentioned is because Esther and Mordecai never say his name or any other of his names. They don't pray or repent. And when Mordecai refers to God's province, uh, promise that he will preserve his people in Esther 4.14, he does so very vaguely, where he says, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. I mean, it seems like a perfect time for him to say, if you don't do this, Esther, God will send relief and deliverance from another place. Or for Esther, in response to that covenant uh, referral, uh, to say a, a prayer that mentions God, or to confess faith in God, or at the very least for the writer of Esther, at this crucial moment, to mention God. And yet God isn't mentioned. Why is God never mentioned? Why is he hidden? Well, one solution often comes by moralizing the story. Uh, we insert God into in, the narrative to ease that tension of him not being mentioned. And so we turn Esther into this moral story where we hold up bad models to avoid and good models to Im imitate. And I hope we've seen throughout this story that that's not why this book is in the Bible. Another solution in history was to fix the troublesome and the morally ambiguous actions, especially in chapters 2 and 3, uh, which was done when the Hebrew Old Testament manuscripts were translated into Greek, which is known as the Septuagint. Uh, Esther uh, has 167 verses, but when they translated uh, the Hebrew into Greek, to ease the tension of these troublesome things and some of the morally ambiguous actions of the characters, the Greek translator ad, uh, translators added 107 extra verses to kind of present Mordecai and Esther as more morally pious and faithful. There's prayers that are added. There are ex uh, external judgments uh, and moral, moral judgments made in these 107 verses to try and make us see Esther and Mordecai as more faithful than the original manuscripts present them. And so, friends, we, we don't need other sources to tell us why Esther is in the Bible. And we definitely don't need to add verses to ease the tension it raises. The solution comes by remembering that Esther is ultimately not about Esther or Mordecai or Haman or Ahasuerus. It's about God. And the book of Esther itself answers then why it's in the Bible. To show us that even at our very worst, when everything we do seems to make it seem like we've forgotten God, when everything we do doesn't deserve God's mercy or favor, God still remains steadfastly committed to his people. He will not fail to keep his covenant promises even when we're faithless. And the lack of moral judgments and the presence of, at best, morally ambiguous actions aren't issues to overcome. They actually shine a spotlight on the glory of God's commitment to fulfill his purposes and promises to the praise of his glorious grace. 
We don't need to ease the tension. We need to help have them lead us to see the glory of God in it. And the glory of God in Esther then kills both human pride and despair. It kills human pride and it kills our despair. Five points, even on our best days, we are never good enough to merit God's favor. God doesn't deliver his people in Esther because of any good in them or any good done by them or any good they will happen to do. God delivers rescue rather than judgment so that we see the glory of his saving grace and so that his name would be praised among all the nations. And so that humbling truth that kills self-righteous pride also is the answer to any despair we might have in knowing that sometimes we are really faithless. It kills any despair that we have when we look at our own failures and faults. If our best days can't merit God's favor, then our worst days can't take us out of God's saving reach. Friends, our salvation is never in us. God alone is our salvation, which is why I was so excited to begin this series a few months ago, that our worst days can't take us out of God's saving reach. And our hope is never that we get it all together, but that God sent the one who always did what he was always supposed to do and then took our punishment in our place for when we failed to do so. And so God will accomplish his purposes. And at times his hand will be hidden when he does so. But God won't fail to keep and deliver his people. Even when we can't see him working, and even when we don't know how he'll do it, God will not fail to deliver. And so we see this through God's deliverance in Esther 8 and 9 in three ways. We see the request, the reversal, and then the rescue. The request, the reversal, and the rescue. So first, the request. As we saw last week in uh, the surprising reversal of chapter 7, God lifted the humble from the ash heap and caught the wicked in their own devices. As Haman hung from the gallows, he built for Mordecai, and Mordecai rose to Haman's position in the empire and was set over his house. But while God delivered Esther and Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai, from the immediate threat of death, Haman's genocidal edict remains intact. And so Esther again goes before the king unsummoned and does so with great sorrow and weeping, throwing herself at his feet, asking him to avert Haman's evil plan. Look at verses 5 and 6. And she said, if it pleased the king, if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, if I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? So let's imagine that we're in the room in this moment. And the king again, or queen again comes unsummoned before the king. And who stands behind the king? The axeman, ready to swing unless the king extends the scepter. But we notice a difference this time in Esther's unsummoned appearance. Last time she entered in all her royal glory and splendor and beauty. She stole the show and wowed the king and the court. And he's like, I'll do whatever you want. Now this time, though, she comes with urgent desperation, 
weeping, pleading at his feet. She doesn't even wait to speak for, uh, for the king to speak first, as is custom. She doesn't even wait for him to extend the scepter. She just starts imploring at his feet, shaking in tears, weeping and pleading for him to avert Haman's evil edict. Desperation, not royal splendor, marks her intercession this time before Ahasuerus. Now, he does extend the scepter, and so now she stands up and does it officially. She, and she presents her request by piling up these phrases to almost butter him up to try and win it, right? She's like, if it pleased the king, if I found favor in your sight, if this thing seems right to you, if I'm pleasing in your eyes. She's been delivered herself, and so has her cousin, and now she uses every ounce of capital for such a time as this to secure deliverance for the rest of God's people. Haman's downfall was surely complete. It was. He fell, just as was foretold by his own wife. But the full rescue of God's people hasn't yet occurred. And so she boldly requests the king to avert the coming evil and give relief to God's people. And that instructs us in our time and in our day as well, brothers and sisters. We too live in a time between the downfall, the certain and sure downfall of our great enemy, and we still await our full rescue on the last day. Our deliverer, Jesus, does reign on high right now over all things. And yet we still live in the shadow of evil and death. We still await Jesus' victorious return and our eternal relief and deliverance. But it's in Jesus, too, that we can come boldly before the throne of God with persistent prayer for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven while we wait upon him. So if Esther can plead in desperation to a fickle king for a needed but temporary deliverance, how much more should we be characterized by persistent prayer to a good fatherly king who loves to give good gifts to his children? And is he not a father who does not need us to heap up empty phrases in such a way to try and unlock his love and grace towards us. A prayer is not ever something that we have to figure out or a puzzle where we got to get the pieces in the right place for God to hear and answer us. He, he's a father who calls himself the God who hears prayers, and he teaches us how to commune with him. He's a good father who longs for us to come boldly before his throne in the presence and in union with his son, Jesus Christ. And so, five points. God's sovereignty is never an excuse for prayerlessness or to not engage in the mission he's sent us on. We must be persistently asking, seeking, knocking kind of people. And God gives us the grace to be just that for the accomplishing of his purposes both in us and through us. We live in this time where the full downfall is certain and sure and accomplished, 
but we still wait for the full unlocking of it all. And in these moments, we go boldly before the throne under the blood of our Savior. And let's be that asking, seeking, knocking people. So Esther's request then leads secondly to the reversal. The request becomes a reversal. And there are actually two reversals in verses 7 through 17. There's the reversal of Haman's edict and a reversal of the empire's response. Now first, the reversal of Haman's edict begins when Ahasuerus grants Esther's request. But we have to get creative here in the moment because by law, edicts uh, signed by the king can't be revoked. But they can be counteracted. They can be superseded. Two edicts can go side by side with one another. And so Ahasuerus grants authority to them to counteract Haman's edict. And here again, we see Mordecai and Esther's creativity and wisdom on display. It's an ingenious plan that undoes Haman's edict without actually undoing it. Uh, Their edict is really a point-by-point reversal of Haman's evil edict. If we sit them side by side, everything's exactly the same except the new edict supersedes and, and, and counteracts it. It's also sent to all 127 provinces, to every leader in those things, in the same languages of those people, on swift horseback, just like the first edict. Now, uh, God's people can also assemble and defend themselves against anyone who assembles to attack them, like the original edict said. Now God's people can kill, destroy, and annihilate their attackers and their families, and plunder their goods on a single day, the 13th day of the month of Adar, verse 12. And so Haman's evil, unjust edict is stunningly reversed with a stroke of a pen. And the signet ring wax insignia. Esther and Mordecai's edict of deliverance and relief saves God's people who were under a death sentence. And and we're taking this in chunks, but you can see the growing tension. This is meant to be, up until chapters 6 and 7, this this tension. What is God going to do? How is he going to bring deliverance and relief? And when it comes, it is a moment of joy and shouting and relief and gladness. Rejoicing should well up in us. Because this points us to the greatest reversal of all. Jesus identified with his sinful people, even to the point of death on a cross. But that was God's plan to undo death once and for all. For when Jesus rose from the grave, he laid death back down into it. And as this new edict went out nine months in advance, and so they had to wait for that day of deliverance to arrive nine long months later, So God's people now wait for the trumpet to sound, and it will, for the Lord to descend, and he will, for every eye to see him, for those who believe in him to be changed. We still wait for the dead to rise, for the heavens to be rolled back as a scroll, for the earthly elements to melt as in a fire, for the book to be opened in final judgment, for every enemy to be put under Jesus' feet in uh, defeat, for death to die, for Jesus to wipe every tear from our eyes, 
and then for God's people to be forever with the Lord. That is coming. It is certain. But what do we pray now? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We both can say, praise God, for these things will be true. But for now, we wait. We wait. We wait to hear that trump sound for him to descend, for every enemy to be defeated, for him to wipe the tears from our eyes once and for all, for him to put death to death forever. But we are in these days of waiting. But friends, because the coming deliverance is certain, we wait with joy. We wait with joy. That's the second reversal we see in the empire's response. Do you remember when Haman wrote this edict in chapter 3, and then he and Ahasuerus toasted their wine glasses on the palace garden in celebration? Do you remember when the edict went out, what was felt in Susa? It was not the joy and gladness that we see Haman and Ahasuerus partaking in. Susa was thrown into confusion. And what was the response to the original edict in the rest of the empire? Well, God's people mourned greatly. But look what Ahasuerus granting Esther's request has now turned all this into by reversal. Look at verses 16 and 17. Look at the number of these reversals. Fasting reverses into feasting. Mourning reverses into rejoicing. Grief reverses into gladness. The empire distanced themselves from God's people because they were under a death sentence, but that distance reverses into desire to become part of God's people. I mean, reversal after reversal after reversal. And I like how Christopher Ashe explains this last reversal well. He says this, We do not know exactly what becoming Jews meant, but it would seem that these people were identifying themselves with God's people in such a way that the enemies of God's people would have had them in their sights too. They do change sides. What that means, we're not told in Esther. What it means is that it puts them on the side of the Jews who, under the original edict, had a death sentence. They changed sides in such a way that the enemies of the Jews became their enemies as well. But this contagious joy spreads through the empire at the reversal of the death sentence. This new edict has a contagion of joy attached to it. it, it the, the death sentence that was so sure has been reversed. And so five points, when, when we rightly understand who God is and what he has done, and then the certainty of what he has promised to do, when we rightly understand those things, it makes us joyful. It doesn't just give us an option to be joyful. It actually begins to create joy within us. Joy begins to well up within us when we rightly understand who God is and what he has done and the certainty of what he's promised to do. 
It makes us joyful. One of the best ways I've heard joy described um, is that joy is the settled conviction that God is in control. Joy is the settled conviction that God is in control. And I think that's true because it explains so well why Christians are then commanded to rejoice always. And then if you didn't get it the first time, Paul says, let me say it again. Rejoice always. Yes, always. I said, do it. Rejoice. Oh, well, how? I don't feel like it. That, that's, not what I, that's not what joy is. It's a settled conviction that God is in control, which is how we can be sorrowful, yet what? Always rejoicing. Sorrow and joy. Those don't go together in our world unless we allow God to tell us what joy is. The settled conviction that he is in control. So joy isn't being happy or bubbly or stoic. Joy is the settled conviction that God is in control. So we may not be able to see his hand at work, but we can be joyful because God is in control. We may not know when or how final victory will be ours, but God is in control. Everything may seem stacked against us. We may see enemies surrounding us, but God is in control. I'll get you to talk one of these days. God is in control. In those moments when you feel sorrowful and overwhelmed and anxious and fearful, that does not mean you can't be joyful because we can have a settled conviction that God is in control. And this means, brothers and sisters, as one author writes, nothing occurs in God's universe except what he has willed to use for his own good ends, preeminently the manifestation of his love for his people. That's a fancy way of just saying he's going to do everything to show that he loves you and prove his love for you in making everything that happens turn out for your good. So we can have this overriding response of joy, even in times of great tribulation, because every trial will bring about God's loving and good purposes for us and his glory, including the defeat of our enemies, including the wicked having their own evil fall back on their own head, including the wicked falling in the pit that they dig for other people. We might not know when that happens. We might not know how it's going to happen. We might not even think God is at work right now in doing so, but God is in control. And so we can have great joy. In our anxious age of fear and worry, brothers and sisters, what a witness a joyful people will be in our world when we live out the settled conviction that we claim to believe. When we so often celebrate temporary 
earthly joys. Today, there's some football game going on. Apparently, I thought, I thought the season ended when our team didn't make it, but apparently they're still playing. And people on one side of the country are going to be celebrating, or the other side of the country celebrating. A thing that's going to get repeated next year. And we celebrate temporary earthly joys all the time. So how much more should we celebrate, enjoy the eternal death sentence that we were under has been lifted in Jesus Christ? Let's be that joyful people. And what a witness we might be in our world of anxiety and fear to the neighbors and the nations around us when we don't just say God is sovereign, but live it. And so then, finally, that brings us to the rescue. The request and the reversal then lead us thirdly to the rescue. So we have this gap of six months between the end of chapter 8 and the beginning of chapter uh, 9, uh, excuse me, nine months, uh, when Esther chapter 9 opens on the day of the 13th of Adar. And we see two groups of people gathering. Those who hate God's people, they gather to rise up to kill, destroy, and annihilate them. And God's people assemble to defend themselves. Because this new edict allowed them to do so. And in another miraculous reversal in the book of Esther, those who desired mastery over God's people were actually mastered themselves. And there was great rejoicing which is a difficulty if we can just be honest for a moment. Because Esther 9 contains lots of violence and the very high probability of women and children being killed. So we're told 500 men in Susa were killed, but nothing about families or women and children but then later we're told 75,000 in the rural areas of the empire who hated God's people very broadly, which most likely includes women and children, were killed on this day. And that, that can be troublesome, especially when we're told God's people engaged in the violence. So the way forward through the difficulty is to see that this is God's divine justice and the deliverance of his people who were under an unjust death sentence. This is God's divine justice against evil. It's not to eliminate the tension in the text, but it does point us to the fact that there really isn't anyone, quote-unquote, innocent. We are all born enemies of God. And we long for the day when he will descend and make all things right. Put every enemy under his feet. And, and, and we say those things in broad terms, so maybe we don't feel the tension in it, but the reality is this is real human beings created in the image of God, but 
But if they do not turn to the only one who can be their refuge against that divine retribution, which is just against their sin, this is what everyone will face. And so this must be seen as God's deliverance of his people who were under the unjust death sentence through God's divine justice against evil. And and to remember that those who died on Adar 13th weren't innocent. They gathered in bloodthirsty vengeance as haters of God's people and attacked them first. This was a self-defense, and they were given the permission, this edict, to defend themselves against anyone who attacked them. But what about Esther going back to the king and asking for an extension of the edict in Susa and the public display of the dead bodies of Haman's ten sons on gallows? It can seem like Ahasuerus has rubbed off a little bit on her, right? I mean, his words in verse 10, or excuse me, verse 12, Reveal, he kind of enjoys things like this. Uh, He's like, 500 men died in Susa? I can't wait to hear the numbers in the rest of the empire. Like, this is kind of their, it it points to the type of character Ahasuerus is. He's he's a violent dude and not a very good guy. He's like, oh man, let's get the popcorn out. What's happening in the rest of my empire? I can't wait to see the numbers. So has he rubbed off a little bit on Esther? Is she being vindictive here and going back to seek more bloodshed? Well, the result of the extension tells us no, right? Esther returns because there are more enemies in Susa that remain. And if the new edict isn't extended, then those remaining enemies will kill, destroy, annihilate, and plunder God's people on the 14th day of Adar, if God's people can't defend themselves. And she asks for it just in Susa, which tells us she's not being vindictive because it seems that in the rural towns, the enemies and the hatred have been put down. And she's not vindictive because she's requesting an extension of the edict, not an amendment. Do you see? She's asking again, for the ability to defend themselves against attackers who are coming. She's not asking for them to be able to proactively go out and start annihilating people. She's asking for an extension, not an amendment. But even even that is not all that's going on here. We have another clue for what's going on in Esther chapter 9, as three times in verses 10, 15, and 16... We're told God's people laid no hands on the plunder. Even though the edict allowed them to, they laid no hands on the plunder. And the three-time repetition is meant to drive that truth home. So it points us back to the reason why Haman was ever even born in the first place. In 1 Samuel 15, King Saul disobeyed God when he left King Agag of the Amalekites alive and plundered them, which he was told not to do. So Samuel confronts him and says, And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight 
of the Lord. So again, we're pointed back to this hostility that's in Esther. That it's not just these two guys in chapters 2 and 3 that start to have a little fight with one another. But this is an ancient hostility between the Israelites and the Amalekites, which was allowed to go on because Saul didn't obey God. And so here we have Haman the Agagite from a descendant of King Agag of the Amalekites, and we have Mordecai, a descendant of Kish from King Saul's lineage, meet here in Susa. And so what this is actually uh, doing here in Esther 9 is we see Esther and Mordecai carry out through self-defense what King Saul failed to do. When Esther asks for an extension, she's not being vindictive. She becomes God's instrument to complete God's task that his people failed to do centuries earlier. And even the impaling of Haman's sons post-death, as gruesome as it is, isn't just the ancient tactic of keeping living relatives from taking vengeance upon you, and also as a warning to anyone else who's going to try to take you out, what might happen to you if you do so. In Esther 9, it's God bringing deliverance to his people by putting his enemies to open shame. It is difficult to think of God as one who puts down his enemies. But if we're truthful about what we really believe about the doctrine of sin, this isn't vindictiveness in God. It's his divine justice against human sin, but it's also mercy. If he doesn't put enemies to open shame, future enemies might never be warned what the end of the path they're walking will be if they continue down it. It is hard to see God taking out his enemies like this and putting them to open shame as a mercy, but it is. It's a warning to not continue fighting against him, but to find our refuge in him. And this points us in two directions. This points us then in two directions. It first points us back to the serpent seeking to ensure the serpent crusher is never born. God intervenes and keeps his people alive because Satan is at work through his seed of the serpent in the sons of Haman to try and eliminate the seed of the woman so that the serpent crusher is never born. And Esther knows that his ten sons and any other remaining enemies aren't just going to stop trying to eliminate the seed of the woman just because their father hangs on a gallow. So Esther is not repaying evil for evil. She's executing God's justice upon his enemies at, and at the same time ensuring that the seed of the woman continues living on so that the Messiah, the one who will one day crush the serpent, would be born. That's what we're pointed back to. But this pointing back also then points us forward. 
not just to the seed crusher being born, but to the seed crusher's death on the cross. Notice how Colossians 2 addresses God's victory over his enemies. He says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh made God alive together with him, having forgiven us of all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. God will execute justice upon sin. It's legal demands. That's what we get. But he forgave us by canceling that debt that stood against us with that demand. This he set aside how? Nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him, in Jesus. And so what we see, what's actually going on in Esther 9, is just as the enemies of God's people were put to open shame in Esther, so Jesus' death on the cross was actually his triumphing over his enemies, which then actually puts them to open shame. What they thought was the shame of Jesus, which it was, his death and torture and hanging on the cross. He bore our shame, but in bearing it was the way to undo their plot and put them to open shame. But here is where we must ask for eyes to see something deeper. Because remember, in our sin, we're all enemies of God. We all deserve God's just judgment and in the end to be put to open shame. But what did God do on that wooden cross? God accomplished the deliverance of those who were once enemies, yet he set his love upon them from before the foundation of the world to save them by hanging his only beloved son on wood. Like Haman and his sons hung on wood as God's open uh, enemies in open shame. So Jesus became God's enemy in our place when he became sin and bore our shame and hung on the cross. But it was the will of the Lord to crush his only son to accomplish his glorious purposes of salvation which was at the same time putting his enemies to open shame. Which means not only will those whose faith in Jesus never be put to shame because Jesus was on their behalf, because Jesus crushed the serpent through his death and resurrection, God's people can have the settled, joyful conviction of Romans 16. It says this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Because Jesus was crushed in open shame, we will never be. And his crushing will actually be in the end Satan's crushing under our feet. And because Jesus, the seed of the woman, has already conquered our, our final victory by 
God's ultimate defeat of his enemies is certain. It's as certain as gravity is holding you down in your seat right now. Jesus conquered, and so our final victory is sure. So two things as we close. Friend, the open shame of God's enemy in Esther and Jesus bearing it at the cross, which then put God's enemies to open shame, are a warning for all God's enemies today. Every enemy will one day fall, as they always have. But there is one who can save you from being put to open shame and eternal death, and he is Jesus Christ. He saves all those who turn to him in faith and repentance. We will fall. There are two ways, though, that we can fall. You will either fall before Jesus and take refuge of him, or you will fall before him on the last day. Do so today so that you don't fall before him on the last day. And brothers and sisters, how then shall we live knowing that the God of peace has already crushed Satan through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Well, let us joyfully walk together in our settled conviction that God will keep his promise. And one day soon, we will see Satan crushed under our feet along with death once and for all. Let's pray. Well, God, we are in awe at how you bring about these surprising and great reversals in Esther. And we're even more in awe in what it points us to, the great reversal at the cross, that those who were once far off were brought near, that those who were once enemies were made sons, that in Jesus' death, death was put to death. And that one day soon, not only will you crush all your enemies, but you will crush death once and for all, and then we will forever be with the Lord. And so let us live with joyful conviction that you are in control and are accomplishing your purposes. Let us live so joyfully among our neighbors and the nations for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.